Welcome to the Why We Fight podcast. I'm your host, Justin Stamm. If you're looking for truth, political clarity, and a strong path forward to fight for the survival of Western civilization, then you're in the right place. If not, then catch up, get with the program, or go piss off. We're done with diplomacy. We're in the middle of a war, and you're either with us or against us. This is Why We Fight. If you want to contribute directly to my work, follow me on Twitter X and you can tip me with either cash or Bitcoin, or you can subscribe by going to my subscribe sir page at Why We Fight Podcast with Justin Stamm. And you can choose three different tier levels to contribute to this important work. But whatever you decide to do, thank you for listening. I appreciate all of my listeners. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Mafia, mafia, mafia. Everybody wants to talk about the mafia again. Seems like this subject goes around in cycles where it goes dead for 10 to 12 years. And then everybody wants to bring it up again. Interesting for 2024 at least. So today is January 17th, 2024. And uh, we're going to go over a couple things regarding my previously posted audio and videos in my interviews of Mike Falco specifically. And I had taken those down, but I'll, I'll be reposting them again. Uh, but I, I think I need to place some context of why I posted those in the first place. So at the time back in 20, well, let's say 2001 to 2004, we were working on something of, uh, we were working on a project that was really around the mafia jukebox rock and roll era of the 1950s. Myself, my mother, and uh, Tommy Sobeck, uh, who I had brought up before. And uh, he thought that I should start talking to somebody that he's known for decades at that time. And uh, he was involved with the jukebox music. He was involved with the whole subject matter. So that that's the whole reason why I put together what I basically, what really is a, a, a sizzle reel. And because we were talking to some studios and production offices, they wanted to hear a basic video presentation they could share with executives and share with the talent that they were looking at. And so that's why I put that together. That's why it seems like it's out of context and not only the subject matter itself, but also who exactly is Mike Falco and what exactly is Paola. By this time, I think everybody knows what Paola is, uh, but 2000 to 2004, that was still an era where people only knew about what they saw in Goodfellas, Analyze This, Godfather, and so forth. So who who was Mike Falco? So Mike Falco was somebody that grew up with a lot of the wise guys that you may have heard of in the past. His father was a grocer. He was not, he was very connected, but he wasn't a wise guy himself, his father. And he really didn't want Mike to go into that life. And so although he had the protection of guys going as far back as uh, the original commission guys, and you can talk about uh, Frank Castello, you could talk about Luciano, you could even talk about Uncle Jimmy, really. But as Mike grew older and he got into his teens, he was really interested in the uh, jazz clubs where a lot of the wise guys controlled. And I, when I say wise guys, it's not just uh, the Italians, of course. I mentioned this before. It's also the Jewish mobsters. And they did a lot of business together because they grew up in a lot of the uh, poorer parts of Brooklyn 
and Bronx and Queens and uh, old New York. So uh, he loved the jazz music. He ended up becoming a hat check boy by the time he was about 14 years old. He grew a mustache, so he appeared older. Uh, like he said to me, he began drinking at about that age. Uh, but hat check boy, everybody knows in the old clubs uh, in New York and the inner cities of different different cities. Uh, they'd be the guys to check everybody in. They'd take their hats, they'd take their coat, they'd put it in the closet, they'd take a tip. And so he got to know a lot of guys through that era. And I believe he said the first place he started uh, that work, uh, his his career as a hat check boy, uh, was at the Birdland Jazz Club. Uh, I might be mistaken on that because I know he ended up going to Julie Padell's club, which is, of course, the Coco Cabana. And through that series of relationships he built up through that era, he met other guys around the music business that crossed over into uh, the the organized crime world, like Joe Skindori, right? And as he got older, he had utilized some of his relationships that I had mentioned before that he already had, such as Joe Colombo. So Joe Colombo, and that's senior... Uh, he grew up with riding uh, horses on Long Island. They played Army Soldier in the Sand with a bunch of other guys that later became big-time names and, and made guys. And so he had a childhood relationship with Joe. Now, he, di- he didn't go into the Colombo family. According to him, he kind of bounced around. So he had already had older family members that were already in, in the Mafia. His blood uncles included Carmine Lombardozzi, known as the King of Wall Street. He was looked at as the Italian Meyer Lansky because he was so good with money. He was with the uh, Gambino family. He was a Gambino captain. Uh, Another uncle was uh, Frank Funzi Terry, the one-time Genovese boss. He had another uncle that was Dominic Midori, Genovese captain. Uh, And and there's other people, but I'm not going to mention them here. But he, he utilized some of these contacts because he had been enamored with not only the music business, but a lot of the movie stars that hung out at these clubs. So as he got older, he got interested in talking to some people to, to be an actor. And before even becoming an actor, because he was already in one of those families, he, he had been used as a strong man, both as a collector and as, as a made guy doing whatever he was told. And that would include whatever needed to be done with violence. But eventually, he ended up going all the way out to Los Angeles, and he pursued a career in, in acting. And some of his family, including Joe Colombo, his cousin, and some others, thought he was kind of crazy to try to pursue that. He was already known to be a wise guy. He was already known uh, on the street, and so they thought it was a little bit weird, almost gay. And when he got out there, he actually became a member of the Screen Actors Guild after getting a few jobs and got representation from one of the agencies. And the movies he ended up acting in were directly connected to the guys that Frank Costello and Joe Colombo already knew and were connected to. And that, of course, was Frank Sinatra, Dom DeLuise, and of course, Don Rickles. And some of the movies he actually acted in were Hot Stuff, starring Dom DeLuise and Susan Plachetti, Detective, starring Frank Sinatra and Lee Remick. So this is off of his resume. Lady in Cement, starring Frank Sinatra, Richard Conti, and Jill St. John. Tony Rome, starring Frank Sinatra, Richard Conti, and Raquel Welsh. 
Lenny, starring Dustin Hoffman, Valerie Perrine. Godmother, starring Mickey Rooney, Jerry Lester. TV series, uh, Hennessy, starring Jackie Cooper and Don Rickles. And I think that's that last one is where he met Don Rickles. So, uh, although he had some roles, he never really made it, so to speak. And so he ended up eventually leaving L.A. and he came back to the East Coast. And in doing so, he was put to work with Joe Colombo from his family, say, on loan, to start handling some of the music acts that were around the jazz clubs and uh, the emerging rock and roll acts from some of the black music that was being performed at the time. Now, remember, the wise guys controlled the music venues. They controlled the jukeboxes. And they were looking for the next new talent because it got untenable to host some of these big jazz band acts like the Dorsey Band and so forth. So, according to Mike, at least, he had mentioned that he heard on a radio show that was being broadcast out of Cincinnati, Ohio, a show called The Moondog Show run by Alan Freed. And he played some of the music that they had heard in the, in the East Coast, in New Jersey and New York. But he was playing new things from music lists that he pretty much created. And so he was b- becoming a hit maker for some of these white kids playing black rock and roll music. And so when he presented that to some of his family members and some of the other guys that were in the music business, such as Morris Levy, which is a very well-known name in the rock and roll business back, uh, back in the East Coast, some of his Genovese family members, and of course, Joey, Joe Colombo, uh, they saw to it to, to pursue a relationship with him. So according to him, he went out all the way out there to meet with him, along with some other guys, and they eventually brought him to New York and made him an offer. Now, Morris Levy was partnered with George Goldner and some record companies, uh, and, and they eventually signed him not only to help represent these record uh, labels on music lists, but helped him get a job at the WINS radio station in New York City. And that radio station was bought, if I remember right, around 1953 to 1954. And that was bought by J. Elroy McCaw. And J. Elroy McCaw uh, bought that as a sports station and turned it into, with the intent to turn it into, a rock and roll radio station where Alan Freed would broadcast from. And his song list would come from mafia, mostly mafia-owned rock and roll labels. So it was a brand new thing. So it was a trifecta of power surrounding this entire music industry that was emerging at that time, the next new thing. And it went from having 50 to 100 people in a band to produce the old band music to four or five guys in suits and playing rock and roll music. It was a much easier type of music to handle. And the trifecta, of course, was radio broadcasting the, the records, producing the records, and having the live act so that the kids can hear the music in person at the venues so they control the venues. And it spread like wildfire. It got to a point where whatever Alan Freed played, whatever the other DJs heard on the Moondog show, they copied and they wanted that song list and they had to pay for that song list. Sometimes they didn't have to pay. Sometimes they didn't want to play it. And sometimes they weren't a rock and roll station. But that's where George, George Goldner and Morris Levy came in, where they would 
groom, if not influence, if not force some of these guys through some form of coercion or even threats to start playing rock and roll music, to start playing their song list. And that was in one city after the other. But eventually it got to a point where people wanted to help spread this. So starting from 1954 onward, that's really where the rock and roll jukebox era sprouted from. And that's what Mike was in the middle of. He not only was very close to, to Alan, he was, he was attached to him like on a regular basis. He was assigned to him, not only to protect him, make sure nobody else shook him down, but he also, at first, before broadcasting from WINS, was oftentimes broadcasting from his attic in his mother's house meaning Alan was broadcasting from Mike Falco's mother's house that was across the river in, in New Jersey. And so oftentimes that would, that would relieve him from having to go into the city constantly. And so it spread from there. And so really, the, the reason of pursuing this type of story at that time, at about 2002 to 2004, was because although... Uh, we had to wait until Uncle Jimmy passed to use his name because he had already been in trouble with the law before in the, in the 60s. He went to jail for some racketeering charges. But Uncle Jimmy also had some other people attached to him that when he immediately passed away, we didn't get a green light. We didn't immediately get that. So in order to stay busy and trying to pursue other stories that we could capitalize on his involvement indirectly, we were pursuing... What, we, what everybody really accepts as the most glamorous, the most powerful time of not just American, Americana uh, culture, but also mafia culture, which had its meat hooks in many, many different aspects of the entertainment business and, and other businesses too. But it was kind of the, the golden years of, of, of America, of Americana. And so it was meant to be in lieu of doing the entire Jimmy Alo Meyer Lansky partnership story. And so, and, and which my mother is the only one that has the rights to get that clear. Whenever you look up Vince and Jimmy Blue Eyes Alo, not only was she the only one that has the rights given directly from Jimmy Alo and uh, Tommy Sobeck, but also nobody else has the rights to. So I'll address the little old lady in Pasadena that was an employee of our company that decided to go on her own against contract and we'll handle that at another time. But she wanted, she took it upon herself to go out and even wanted to make a stink if we didn't allow her to do so, go out and write a book about and involving Jimmy's name. And so we'll, we'll handle that in another, in another podcast. But as it relates to uh, Mike Falco and his background and his relationships, that's the context of understanding this this these series of interviews, his audio interviews I did with the with him on the phone many many years ago, and so now hopefully it won't be so out of context when somebody hears him talking about some of this stuff. So he was directly involved with the creation of the rock and roll subculture that became a major part of American culture, and without Alan Freed, without WINS without the jukeboxes pushing the chosen records and without the the actual playlist that was coming from the mafia-controlled, Jewish and Italian mafia-controlled uh, record companies, then you wouldn't have had the rock and roll era. You would not have had the modern era of music that we see today. And, and Mike was in the middle of that. He was right smack dab in the middle of it. So he wasn't just involved... <laughs> 
directly with the music, though. He, of course, was still a wise guy. And so he had other side jobs. Later on, he ended up not only becoming uh, Frank Sinatra's uh, uh, protection, let's just say, and travel with him for years. He ended up leaving him because of the uh, scenario that is described in the following uh, discussion with him regarding Joe Colombo. So when Joe Colombo sent for him, as he says in, in the interview, and Frank didn't come, there was a contract put out on him. So, and this wasn't the first time this happened to Frank. Uh, in the mafia world, you not only have to show up for a meeting when you're sent for, but you can't be late. If you're even five minutes late for a meeting, they don't really care how it is. You can actually be killed for that in the old days. And Frank refused to come to Joe, even though after having protection from Frank Costello, and Joe took care of him to make sure nobody else shook him down, he didn't respond and didn't show up to a meeting when he was sent for. And that's, that's why. That's what the whole thing was where, where Mike was describing that. And so it was actually Uncle Jimmy that got him out of that contract, that got him out of that trouble. And it was actually Uncle Jimmy that helped him get out of the trouble that he had later on in, in, in years with uh, Sam Giancana. So that was one of the guys that Mike was with. Mike was also with Don, Don Rickles. He was with Don Rickles for years. And there's some crazy stories I have recordings of where Mike described how uh, Don had actually harassed somebody at a particular show that Joe Colombo told him directly not to harass. And what do you know, the first guy that he goes after was another wise guy that Joe Colombo told him not to harass and it was a really ominous recording that I'll post later on. But Mike described how, how Joe, since he knew him since he was a kid, he felt that he was the only one that could stop him from beating the life out of Don. And when Joe Colombo went backstage to handle Don after going against his wishes to not go after this guy in the live show, it's Mike that stepped in and stopped him from doing that. And Joe even said, look, you're getting in my way. I'm a boss. I can have you put down because I know, but this isn't right. And really Don was saved by Mike. He stopped it from happening. Iron ironically, Mike actually really liked Don. He was more involved with his life than, as he said, than Frank allowed him to be. And uh, he really loved him. And he was so protective of him that there was a particular show at one time where he was out back smoking a cigarette with some other uh, guys in a band that had an opening act before Don got on stage. And in the alleyway, one of the guys started trash-talking Don. Mike didn't like it and told him to take it back. The guy smarted off to Mike. Mike pulled out a gun and shot him in the leg. That's how Mike was. That's who Mike was. And that's not the only time he's done something like that, which is why some people thought he was a little bit high strung for being an actor or anything in the front of the camera. So uh, I always got along with him great. I always had great conversations with him through the years. And it was uh, a pretty exciting part of history to talk to him about this subject matter. So now that you have a context, hopefully you understand where he's coming from. And uh, this particular edited audio that you're going to hear now is something that I posted before. 
and it's actually edited together from uh, a few different conversations. But it's it was meant originally, like I said, to be a sizzle reel, a presentation of what we intend on telling on a larger scale. And although although this is not entirely based on Mike Falco's life. In the actual audios following, it's meant to show that he particularly was there at the beginning of the rock and roll era. So, and just remember here, guys, this is not just nerding out on mafia history. And it's definitely not just nerding out on the rock and roll Americana time period. This to prove to you that the relationships that there were between the owner of WINS, which was J. Elroy McCaw and the Mafia, was all the way back even before this era. It was a well-documented relationship. During the era of World War II, everybody has probably heard by now that there was an operation called Operation Underworld, in which the federal government and its different agencies worked with the Italian, the Jewish, the Irish, and other Mafia to help secure the docks, against the Japanese and German uh, sabotage for Navy ships going to war and so forth. And they also used them for other intelligence gathering, especially when they landed in, uh, in, in North Africa and moved up through Italy and Sicily. So some of the Sicilian mob sided with America and Britain. Some of the Sicilian mob actually sided with the Germans and Italians, with Mussolini and, and Hitler. But the point is, is that not just uh, Operation Underworld, but also Operation Gladio. There were many operations in which they worked with, many different projects that they worked with. So they weren't always chasing down mafiosa to throw them in jail. They worked with them many times. And one of those instances was the MK Ultra Operation Mockingbird media part of the uh, media business. Culture influence, culture change. This is documented. Many of the newspaper owners that were around in the late 1900s uh, or late 1800s, early 1900s, all the way through to the mid 20th century, like Philip Randolph Hearst, were already involved with other Jewish mafioso. Uh, same thing in the New York Times, same thing in LA, Detroit, Baltimore, Boston, all over the place, all over the place. And there were Italian uh, mobsters that were involved with that too. So before even the rock and roll era, a lot of the jazz music was started by and protected by, of course, musicians, but protected by and invested by uh, Jewish mobsters. And even more so, you could see a lot of history of Hollywood and the movies and how in the 1920s and 30s, it is well known now. These documentarians declare very well, very clearly, it's well known that the movie studio moguls were financed by a lot of their family members that were not only in Wall Street high finance, but also in, in the mafia and different organized criminal organizations. Okay, so this is a well-known thing. So uh, that means that predated the CIA and the National Security Act. So when the, the NSA, the CIA, the FBI, all these organizations came along with the federal government, there was already an existing structure of organized crime operating and controlling all the vice in this country and really the West, even before World War II. And what this relates to the rock and roll era is that J. Elroy McCaw was a, a former OSS member. Okay, so... What would he be doing working with the mafia to help promote mafia-controlled rock and roll records? 
What would he be doing hiring Alan Freed, who was completely mob-controlled? Why would he do that? And why would other radio stations also be influenced by that? Why would that music be placed in mafia-controlled jukeboxes through Simplex and MV distributing companies owned by guys like Meyer Lansky and Morris Levy and Jimmy Alo, mainly Jimmy Alo and Meyer Lansky? You know, the same company that would have controlled slot machines, that would have controlled voting machines. Yeah, that. You can kind of relate to how there are articles that have been put out in the past about how Jackson Pollock was hired by the CIA to put out that abstract modernist art, splattering paint on a canvas, and it would sell for millions of dollars. It was a totally created subculture is the point. And they later stated that the importance of doing that was to promote an idea of freedom of expression in the democracy of the West versus the controlled uh, East in the Soviet Union. And so that's what some of this propping up of subcultures to accelerate a cultural change uh, that is so much promoted by the Frankfurt School of Critical Theory. If change is going to come regardless, you might as well be in control of that change. And that's part of that revolutionary political philosophy that if your politic comes from your culture and you create a culture, then that culture also creates a politic that protects itself. It's a symbiosis. And so that's what's so important about this. It's not just the glamour of the Americana 1950s rock and roll era. It was about the control of culture. So keep that in mind. It's not, it's, it's not just a mafia thing. It's not just a history thing. It's not just a really neato thing. It's, a really, it's really an understanding of what we're dealing with in our modern political situation right now, the modern cultural chaos that we have right now. And we have to ask, why is it there? Why is the chaos here? Why do we have a lack of connection with our own historical culture? And why is fashionable culture thrown out so easily every 10 to 12 years? Is it by design or is that by accident? Well, it's obviously by design. And so we have to examine if the people creating these subcultures that influence the changing of culture in general, is it healthy for us? Is it healthy for society? That's really the question. So the following is a series of audio recordings that I edited together for a presentation about the Paola rock and roll jukebox era in the 1950s. Working on the period piece idea before, we had been talking to quite a few characters. What we had tried to come up with was some kind of a conglomeration of ideas with the Paola scene, and not necessarily call it Paola, but have a character, and then this is before we even talked we to you, in the middle of that. who was in the middle of that? We were in the middle of rock and roll. Indeed, I had on three They thought they had the biggest disc jockey in the world, and it was all about Paola. We went before the Senate and everything. My brother-in-law, every, every one of us, was record companies, everything. Morris Levy was involved, who owned Birdland. And the embers, if you remember the famous Birdland in the jungle. Oh, Jazz Corner of the World. Dizzy Gillespie, Cal uh, Basie. I mean, the that's right, that's the right. Trumpet players, the greatest saxophone. Oh, I can't even think of their names, you know. I used to be there every night <laughs> for Harlem, when Harlem was safe. No, that was in the late 50s? Yeah. That's when Paola came out, when rock and roll came. Big thing from New York with the Paola. And with the music and all the acts I had, that they all used to come down and visit me, you know, because rock and roll was out then. It's the phase of uh, 
Seven Wheel, Bob, 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 all those type of songs, you know, different groups. And another phase of music came in at that time. And of course, I had a very dear friend at that time. I can say his name, but his son is still living. Joey Colombo. He was so, I got involved with the Italian club, which hurt me a lot too at the time, but I didn't have anything that I owned at the time. Uh, give me, harass me, you know. And the Italian club was where? Yeah, that was the, uh, the you know, Italian American. Oh, okay. The big thing he started. That's where the feds got mad. He picketed the feds like that, yeah. That's a great story. I mean, uh, that is a story that hasn't been told. No one has attempted to pick the FBI building, picket them. And he did. He did. Now, how the hell can he do that? And who do we have on the line? Guys that will kill us. Guys, when they took the pictures, they said so-and-so. This guy belongs to that family. This guy belongs to this family. Look what he caught. But he was trying to do something that nothing was ever, you know. This is about you, Mike. This is about every Italian walking that's being harassed that were mafia. And that's why I'm doing this. And he was succeeding. Because I remember the trouble he had with Sinatra. I ever get Frank a message. Sorry. Being on my stories, I love stories. And uh, Joey tells me, Joey's on the uh, 12th floor, 13th floor. In any hotel, 13th bedroom. So I go to the uh, uh, 14th floor. And Frank Smatch, the whole floor he's got. He's got three desks in from the start, from the elevator. Before you get to his room, his suite, forget about it. But I could go up there because I worked for him at the time. Thing. And I'm with Joey downstairs in 11. He said, I want you to do me a favor, go upstairs. Yeah. See that skinny bastard. Tell him that I'm leaving tomorrow, and I'd like to see him before I go. Okay, so I go upstairs. I got out of the elevator. Boy, that hey, Mike, how you doing? You know, the security. How tell security, but they got to give it to him. You know, his own security. And I get to the room, knock on the door. Jilly answers, of course, his best man. And who is it? Mike Falco. Who's that? Mikey Falco. He's here to see you. What's he want? Frank. I don't know. They go back and forth. That's the dialogue. But he came out. He said, what is it, Mr. Falco? That's sarcastic when he said that, okay? But right away, I knew I was in trouble. When he said that, Mr. Falco, not Mike, you know. Mr. What do you want, Mr. Falco? I says, Frank, I says, uh, my friend is downstairs. Who's your friend? I said, you know, on the 11th floor. Yeah, uh, he's leaving tomorrow. This is not mentioning his name, you know. What's his room could be tapped, you know, whatever. And um, I know how to talk between the lines. You know. He wants to see, he's leaving tomorrow, he wants to see you before he leaves. Tell him to have a good trip. That's, just, that's what you want me to tell him, Frank? Exactly, tell him that. Tell him to have a good trip, and that's it. And I went downstairs. I, I gotta deliver this message to this Joey. That's <laughs> a good story. It's a true story. It's a good story. So you did. What? It, how did he react when you would deliver the message? Oh, he went out of his fucking mind. He used the language. He said, what did he say? Just have a good trip. That's what Sinatra said to me. And he gave me a dirty look because he spoke that way, Joey. 
What did that skinny cocksucker say? I says, he said, have a good trip. That motherfucker. I'll give him a good trip. He'll get a trip. I don't know what to say, you know. He drunk? I don't know, Joe. He was in his room, and Jilly called him out. That other cockeyed cocksucker? <laughs> Jilly, Jilly had one eye. Yeah. <laughs> that other cockeyed cocksucker? <laughs> this is a true story. You can put that in your book. Oh, no, no, no. Frank is dead, right? Yeah. Died, yeah. Nancy won't get mad. No, Nancy wouldn't get mad. I said, I can forget myself with him now. We're shooting a movie now. We're down there doing a movie. We're going to do another one right after that. Well, who was Sinatra with at the time that he felt that he could disrespect him? Uh, he was with the guy from Chicago. Okay. He got his way, bud. Not Frank. Frank lost. And I knew he'd lose. Because I know Joey was going to sit. An organization that he put together with uh, millions of dollars going. And uh, golf tournaments, he's uh, collecting money from all over. And he was serious about this for some reason. He became like a little Napoleon. He used to put his hand in his suit like <laughs> For real. He was that kind of a guy, you know. But I loved him. I grew up with him, don't forget. We're just friends. I grew up with him. He used to call me the Cisco Kid. That was my nickname. I said, why you call me that, Joe? Well, you... We used to go riding horses. You ride me the Cisco kid with that bus. Where'd you ride horses at? I live at Burger Beach, Long Island. We used to go rent the hack horses, you know, and ride the water, you know, the the, the sand. There was a riding academy out there. So make up gangs. These were all young guys. In fact, I, Joey wasn't even made then. A lot of guys weren't made then. That's just, we were kids. We grew up together. We used to rent horses and then... Uh, split sides. You be the bad guys, and we we chase you and try to find you, you know, and stuff like that. How how old were you then? How old were you then? Oh, I was about seventeen, eighteen, and I was a good rider. And he called me the Cisco Kid because it's a mustache. You see, he gave me that nickname, the Cisco Kid. Would do involved with horses and cowboys, you know, and stuff like that. He liked loved to ride. So we go back a long time. So he won. And all of a sudden, Frank had to appear. And they threw Jimmy Roselli out. Jimmy was going to be the uh, the main guy for the organization for the affair, Square Garden. We're talking about 50,000 people. And what year is that? Uh, well, when we done Tony Rome, i got to find the year. i got to find a picture with the year on it. I was working for Frank at the time. I had no funky. It had to be, had to be in the 70s. Okay. Uh, one of the big march on Washington. Not on Washington, came. That, 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 that Martha will be king. Yeah, in, in New York. I had a big club in New York. Yeah. And that killed me. Two incidents where I lost club. FBI. Well, it wasn't the FBI. It was the AT, you know, alcohol in the back who came and raided us. Took my liquor license away. They bought my whiskey. Channel 10 was from Miami there. All the channels were there. I, I fought them. Right down to the letter. You know? No, they never let us. And, and he's supposed to take over for Roselli? Yeah. Uh, Frank is going to do that. He's just so supposed to be the arranger. Roselli in the, in the uh, wing in case Frank he could make a deal with Frank. He got the deal done because Joey was strong. 
he had Carl, you know. And uh, the guy that really controlled Frank in, in a big way was the guy from uh, Sam Mooney, uh, Chicago. Who I think, because uh, Frank and him were so close. Was up. That's the Marilyn Monroe, uh, Kennedy thing. And they were banging her and they're banging somebody else. Judith, uh... You know, from the new yeah, Judith, um, That's it. the That's black, it. black-haired woman. Exactly. Yeah. She still gets on TV now. So I met them all, and uh, of course I was good friends with Marilyn Monroe. So, uh, but this is when she first started. That when she was close to Frank. I wasn't with Frank then. See, when I had quit Frank and went with Don Rickles. See, and I stood with Don Rickles for four years, and then I quit him. And I couldn't take his shit no more. Yeah, he sounds. <laughs> Sounds like a handful. Uh, he was, you know, he's a funny guy, but he used to drink a lot, and I, I'd have to control him with drinking because he used to get uh, sloppy on the stage. You know, that was my job. See, you know, and then the uh, bodyguard because sometimes he needed it. They wanted yeah. to come and kill him up. <laughs> so people, you know. Uh, oh, I have quite a few spats. Don't worry. And I lived in California. You know, I loved it. All the actors, they all come in to see Don. He was a big draw for actors, you know, for him when he worked in the Crescendo. Oh, my God, every actor, any big actor. I met Tony Curtis with him. I met the Janet Lee. I bought a dog off them. They gave it to me after a while. So, really, I met everybody through Don. Sinatra didn't, uh, Sinatra wasn't like Don Rickles. Uh, uh, you know, bounce off, uh, 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 from people to people. Dom was. Dom loved celebrities. He loved to be around them, you see. And he was a big draw. They used to pick on them, you know. He used to pick on them, and they loved it. Ringside and take his abuse. Funny. They were so funny, I tell you. It's unreal. I was there for two shootings when they shot two of them, and they'd done so many. Dean was a sweetheart. So nice. Ah, oh, what a guy. He didn't, he didn't like Frank's temperament. A lot of controversy. It was business, you know. They were close, but at the end they weren't. So that 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 and that. But anyway, that's that's how I uh, progressed. And uh, Sinatra wound up coming, so I said, "Well, Joey won. So who's bigger?" So he did end up coming. Oh yes, sir.